I, what's motorized? I, the I'm the bar stool itself has has like a like a motor attached to it. You put it on some wheels and you you try you basically drag race down a street. This makes total sense to me. So we are delighted to welcome to the podcast Dr. Jonathan Jackson, who is going to talk to us today about inclusion in within studies and the implications for the decisions around who is included in studies. So Jonathan is the founding director of the Community Access Recruitment and Engagement Research Center, CARE, at the Massachusetts General Hospital and Harvard Medical School, where they investigate the impact of diversity and inclusion on the quality of human subjects research, and they leverage deep community entrenchment to build trust and overcome barriers to clinical trial participation. His research focuses on midlife and late life health disparities in clinical settings that affect black populations. He also works as a cognitive neuroscientist investigating the early detection of Alzheimer's disease, particularly in the absence of overt memory problems. So welcome to the podcast, Jonathan. Thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, thanks. Uh, thanks, Matt and Haley. I'm I'm glad to be here. I I'll be honest. I'm not quite sure why I'm here because I because I'm not strictly speaking an epidemiologist, but uh, I'm certainly happy to talk about some of the the work that I do and the problems that I that I wrestle with, which I think can probably be solved by epidemiological thinking. Two things about that. Number one is you are maybe not an epidemiologist by training, but you're pretty darn close to an epidemiologist in that your work informs epidemiology and makes epidemiology better. And second of all, Haley and I have no idea why we're here either. So it really makes no difference. <laughs> yeah, I, I would never say that I'm trying to solve, you know, the world's biggest problems with the podcast, but we do like to present a, a diversity of opinions and, and a diversity of backgrounds and training experiences. And, and so I, you are more than welcome on this show to to share that with us and, and bring new thoughts to share with our audience and us so welcome all right thank you i think that's i think that's how it starts by by being that mixing bowl of, of ideas yes. and opinions right so yep. maybe this podcast can save the world <laughs> all right <laughs> all right big big lead-in for the episode today <laughs> i'm gonna i'm gonna put that on my cv world saver <laughs> all right so before we get started we want to ask you some lighter questions so that our audience can get a chance to get to know you a little bit better okay so to start off can you tell us something about you that you think most of our listeners would not know about you uh, yeah, so I, I think one thing that a lot of people don't know about me, actually very few people, maybe outside of your listener base know it as well, is that I actually uh, do a, a fiction podcast um, on a regular basis, and I've been doing it for about seven years now. It is a hugely nerdy thing that I don't like to talk about. It is, um, uh, it's sort of a, a fan-produced Star Trek podcast where... Nice! I, yeah, yeah. So uh, I play Lieutenant Commander Gregory Torkelson on uh, a show called Star Trek Outpost. Or it was actually renamed um, Outpost, a Star Trek fan production, so that we didn't get sued by Paramount. Um, but, uh, it's, it's, it's in our hearts as Star Trek Outpost and it's, uh, it's something that's near and dear to my heart. And, uh, sometimes it takes up a lot of time. Sometimes it doesn't, but, um, it's a lot of fun. I think it's, it's beautifully written. I think, you know, there are some fantastic actors on the show. I am not one of them, but I certainly have a lot of fun doing it. 
That is fantastic. So yeah, that's so cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So if I so then if I had asked you the question Star Trek or Star Wars, you would have definitely been Star Trek. I mean, I I guess so. I guess I guess I am Team Star Trek over Star Wars. But I think that's just because my dad was always my dad was into both, but he always had a soft spot in his heart for Star Trek, and so that's really what I grew up watching. And um, you know, I I think that so much of the hopeful forward-thinking way that we often treat science fiction owes itself to Star Trek. Mm. And, uh, you know, I, I think that um, that's kind of where it comes from. I, I I get this warm and fuzzy feeling for Star Trek in my heart that I don't for Star Wars. And I don't think I would ever say that I have a strong preference for one over the other. But, you know, maybe, maybe, maybe this is you telling me that I actually do have a pretty clear preference and it's Star Trek. <laughs> it does feel to me like you, you are on team Star Trek. So then my follow question has to be original or next generation oh boy you know i think that there there are redeeming qualities to both but i my heart and maybe just because of my age i do prefer the next generation to the original mm-hmm. series just because it was like you know a way of of trying to address and tackle seemingly complex social problems uh you know as, as recently you know starting in the 1980s and through the 1990s and the original series did a little bit of that you know, there are kind of landmark moments like the first interracial kiss. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I, I think that Next Generation really leaned into that. You know, it could be heavy handed at times, but I, I really think that the, the writing was consistently better on uh, the later show. Okay, well, I, as somebody who never watched either of them, I just know what the <laughs> questions are. I don't actually have a, have a take on this one. Okay, and last question. What's the, what's the most interesting place you've ever traveled? Most interesting place I've ever traveled. So maybe this is a, a something that you can relate to. I, I feel like the answer has to be it depends. You know, like how are you operationalizing like interesting? Of course. Because you know, for for some people, when I talk about where I grew up, that is certainly the most interesting place that they've ever heard of because it's. I think it's really different to the the experiences that a lot of folks had. But for me, you know, it's it's where I grew up, so it's not so strange. You know, leaving all of that aside and recognizing that there's plenty of room for for debate, even internally in my own head about this, I had the opportunity to go to New Zealand twice in my life. Mm. Uh, Once on a study abroad opportunity, and then I went back like three years later. And, you know, I, I have to say, there are fewer places in the world that are so incredibly beautiful and gorgeous, but also just incredibly accessible. The The country does a great job of, of conserving, uh, of conservation and making sure that the land remains pristine, but you can also go mm-hmm. out there and it doesn't cost a lot of money. It doesn't take a lot of time to travel. And when you're out among nature, you're really out among nature. There aren't any like fences to block your view, but you know, everybody respects the treks and the paths that you can, that you can forge there. But I have to say, I've never been to a place that is more interesting. And you know, sort of a, a small thing is that when I I was there as a, a as a study abroad student in undergrad. I figured out what I wanted to do for the, with the rest of my life. It was just like a bolt of lightning. I realized that I wanted to study Alzheimer's disease and dementia and focus on kind of the brain integrity and white matter. And I did that, you know, kind of had that sort of scholarly moment while sitting looking at like a sunrise from the top of a mountain on the South Island. Um, 
and it was just absolutely beautiful. Like it's so expensive to get over there by plane, but once you get there, mm -hmm. you can you can be on a really truly shoestring budget and see as much of the country as somebody who's spending thousands of dollars per day. Okay, so now I am so incredibly jealous. Yeah, me too. <laughs> I've never been. I've been to to Australia a couple of times, but I've never been to New Zealand. And I, without question, on my list. And it it's got so many of the like. It's such an interesting part of the world, but it does not have all of the things that that freak me out about Australia of all the all the things that are trying to kill me the poisonous spiders and yeah there are there aren't any like those problems with spiders there are no kind of native you know large mammals uh, or even really bugs in many parts of the well there are in, in some parts but mostly no it's all of the lovely things that you would like about being outdoorsy and traveling and hiking without any of the drawbacks and a good response to COVID so we'll just add that onto the list that's that is true they've had an excellent, excellent response to, to COVID-19 Jonathan and you mentioned earlier in that answer uh, where you grew up. Where did you grow up? Oh, gosh. Now, that's that's a whole story, and I don't know if we have time to get into all of it, but <laughs> it's it's a small town called Ben Wheeler, Texas. There are about 300 people there at any given time. That's small. Yeah, it's, it's very, very small. Actually, strictly speaking, I grew up slightly outside the town limits of Ben Wheeler, so I grew up on the edge of nowhere, quite literally, <laughs> completely unincorporated territory. But um, it, it's it's interesting because it is such a small, small town. It's just off of like one of the big interstates in, in northeast Texas, and you know, its claim to fame is to be near to a town that has one of the largest flea markets every month in Texas, which is Canton, Texas, home of the world-famous Canton. And trade days. Mm. And so Ben Wheeler's claim fame is for a long time it was gateway to the Canton trade days. So it was a small town <laughs> whose claim to fame was being really close to another small town that no one had ever heard of. But um, the notable thing about Ben Wheeler are, are two things in particular. So one, it is the home of uh, the sport that we all wish we were good at, which is motorized barstool racing, of course. Oh, totally. I, now, hang on a second. <laughs> You're assuming that I'm not good at it. I, Wait, I, what's motorized? What? I, the, I'm the bar stool itself has has like a like a motor attached to it. You put it on some wheels and you you try you basically drag race down a street. This makes total sense to me. You know, Matt, I apologize for making the assumption that you weren't world class. You know, I, I figured being a world class uh, you know researcher and academic and mayor of epidemiology and epidemiology Twitter took up most of your time, but uh, you know that's me making a, a poor set of assumptions. So I apologize. Well, you know, it was a fair assumption. I'm not actually good at it yet. I'm really still in the amateur league. Okay, but all right. I'm, I'm working my way Semi-pro, semi-pro, right? Semi-pro. Yeah, okay, I know you got some sponsorships pending there. Absolutely. <laughs> okay, so that is absolutely fascinating, and I, I wish we could actually spend all of our time talking about that, but that is not actually why we asked you here. The reason we asked you here is you gave a talk at Boston University, was it a year ago or maybe a little bit longer now, that for me was one of probably two talk that I have heard in the past few years that fundamentally woke me up to things that I really was not paying attention to. And I, you know, you have said many times that you don't see yourself as, as an epidemiologist. And I say, I disagree with that in the <laughs> sense that I think that the work that you are doing is likely to actually have quite a big impact on our field, whether or not you, you had formal training on it. And so maybe just to start us off, can you just talk a little bit about the work that you've been doing over the... I don't know how many years it's been now, you know, in terms of really changing the way that we're thinking about who's included in clinical research. Wow. Yeah, I mean, that's that's such a, a flattering introduction. And I, I, I feel like I can't help 
but let everyone down um, as I start to talk <laughs> about my work. No, but uh, but what what I'm doing is it, it feels like on any given day it is an amalgamation of things that uh, problems that people are thinking about in a bunch of different fields. So thinking about what people are doing in AI and machine learning, uh, library and information science, um, social science more broadly, epidemiology, and of course my my home base of clinical trials. And so it feels like everybody sees a piece of it, but maybe nobody yet quite sees all of it. And and I certainly don't claim to, but I, I think that if I continue on this path for the next several years, maybe we will be able to kind of draw some boundaries around this thing. But the, the problem really starts off with thinking about who is involved in clinical research and how we get people involved in clinical research. We know that the number one most difficult thing to do with any research study, especially a clinical research study, is recruitment. It, this, is, this is not something that is a debatable issue. It is very, very well documented. There, there is like a, a well-documented principle called Lasagna's Law that was coined as far back in the 1970s, which basically says, and this is something that's familiar to everybody, which is kind of the, the idea that the, you know, the availability or our perceived availability of research participants it starts off very, very, very large. And as we continue the study, our per- our perception of perceived availability is that it drops to basically uh, like asymptotically close to zero. And it stays at that level until the exact moment when you are now, when you're next like writing another grant or, you know, trying to negotiate a subcontract to bring in another clinical trial, at which point it goes up to like, it basically approaches infinity. So the idea is that we often think and believe that the number of people that will be interested and available and eligible for research studies is either all or none. <laughs> and, there, and there doesn't seem mm-hmm. to be much of an in-between there. And, and so it turns out that the, the truth of the matter is that when, we, when it comes to doing research studies, we have to think very carefully about the folks that we get in our studies because we, we fundamentally assume that they are exchangeable. This is an assumption that we don't do enough questioning around. So where we have to assume that people are exchangeable, maybe that exchangeability is limited. Maybe it is only within people who have a particular diagnosis or people within a particular region. But we, as especially clinical researchers, tend to assume that people are exchangeable within a broader, like a very broad population. And it does not take much digging to realize that that is completely absurd assumption. Mm-hmm. Like, why are we thinking about that? And so it feels more and more like the problem is that we are just not interrogating that set of assumptions rather than, you know, we're completely unable to, to do anything about it. But a lot of this comes from the direction of trying to be more diverse and inclusive in research. And this is something that I think has, has gotten a lot more attention in the last several months. But again, you know, one of the things that I really enjoy doing is, is trying to ask the question behind the obvious question. And for me, when, we co- when it comes to thinking about diversity and inclusion in, in research, the question is why? Why do we want to do that? And so if you talk to some subset of folks, they might say, well, it's reasons, you know, it's, it's for social justice reasons. It's the moral thing to do. And that's great. But one thing that we know about moral arguments is that they are exceptionally hard to quantify. C-E-G, every religion ever. So, you know, it, it's, it, I think it is a great motivation. But when it comes to scientific questions, we can't rely on, on moral decisions um, to really guide the way forward. So then you're left with, well, okay, maybe this 
is an issue of generalizability. And I think that that does get you, it gets you, that gets you some traction, kind of some degree of understanding the nature of the problem and maybe start to, to appreciate how to fix it. But there is, I think, an emerging understanding that it's not just a threat to, to generalizability or broadly to external validity, but a lack of diversity can also be a really clear threat to internal validity as well. So we may not even be measuring the thing that we're measuring. And so there are, I think, clear arguments from within epidemiology that talk about, say, um, statistical conclusion validity that can obviously help us with either transport or transportation and generalizability. But where I am starting to, to think about this the most, and this is, again, coming from, you know, my my strong interest in, in dementia and Alzheimer's disease is thinking about that internal validity. The idea that maybe our, our theories and our concepts and our constructs may be fundamentally limited because of who we, we've been able to study. And in the case of Alzheimer's disease, you know, a really clear example is trying to understand what causes Alzheimer's disease. So if you know anything about um, the, the, the dementia space, you might have heard of something called the amyloid hypothesis, mm -hmm. which has been under fire pretty heavily over the last couple of years. But the idea is that there are these little, these little peptides, these little proteins that go wrong in your brain called amyloid, and that begins or initiates a cascade of uh, changes of bio markers in the brain that eventually lead to signs of dementia that we would call Alzheimer's disease. We realized early on that that view was really contingent on the population that we were studying. And when you looked at individuals or groups that had higher likelihood of developing Alzheimer's disease, so, so black and African Americans, for example, or actually more specifically African Americans, but not all black Americans, we saw that these were individuals who, who did have a much higher likelihood of dementia broadly, Alzheimer's disease specifically, but they had a lower burden of amyloid. Um, so they didn't have as much of this causative factor in their brains. They had a huge buildup of some other stuff that was not in the Alzheimer's disease model at all. And so it kind of raises the question of if there's this group that is at specific high risk of this disease, but they don't have the thing that we think causes this disease, maybe we don't understand the disease as well as we think we do. And so, you know, you're, you're kind of left in this position of saying who is coming into our studies and what are the, you know, what are the boundaries and what are the limitations of what this group can teach us? And so by studying people who are extremely privileged, who are very, very wealthy, very white, very healthy, you know, it, it makes it much harder to understand what Alzheimer's disease is doing or what any disease is doing kind of out in the wild. And so it seems like what you're saying then, which is something that I guess I hadn't really thought about it, when you first said it isn't just a problem of external validity, it's also a problem of internal validity, I started thinking to myself, what direction are you going to go with this? Because to me, we're talking about misclassification, we're talking about confounding, we're talking about selection bias. Is that where you're going with this? That we have selection biases that are coming into play because we are specifically focused on certain populations that may either be biased or potentially just the effects are, are different in different populations? Is it is it one of those or am I just in the wrong direction? No, 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 no. You're certainly in the right direction. And it, it's it's one of those things that it's, it's all of this and potentially and very likely more. So I, I think that the easiest way to understand this is to think about selection bias, right? So you can mm -hmm. think about this very simply in that, you know, the, the kinds of people who come into our research studies are not necessarily the kinds of people who are at most at risk for having the thing that we're, that we're studying. Sometimes they are. Most times 
times they aren't, especially when it comes to primary or secondary prevention clinical trials, right? So if we're trying to prevent it in a particular population, we don't necessarily have that population represented. So we have to acknowledge that, of course, there's going to be a selection bias when it comes to clinical trials. Uh, we have eligibility criteria. The problem comes, at least from the, the in the sector that I work in, the problem comes in, in failing to recognize that there are multiple selection biases, some of which interact and some which do not at all, that we have to do a much better job of characterizing and quantifying and if we can overcome it, either statistically or methodologically, we, we certainly need to do so. But part of the problem is that we have not done a good job within the clinical trials landscape of even understanding the impact of these selection biases on our on our research studies. I think in some ways using those categories that we epidemiologists really like to use being selection bias, misclassification and confounding doesn't really capture the problem you are talking about if I'm understanding it correctly because in some ways it's a missing data problem which I guess could fall under a couple of different headings. It reminds me of this session at SER a few years ago about the worst type of bias and one of the presenters was was making a case for missing data being the biggest problem because exactly in the example that you gave with the amyloid in African-American individuals, you don't know that that is a problem if those folks are not in your study. And you can't understand that as a problem until you begin to recruit those diverse groups of individuals that are not the white privileged folks who may sign up first for your trial or whatnot. So it goes beyond those kind of categories of bias that we talk about in epidemiology because... I don't think it fits neatly under one of any of those those categories. Yeah, I, again, I'm, I'm not a trained epidemiologist, so it's, it's hard for me to say that definitively and shake my finger at all of you. But um, No, no, it's, that's not what No, I mean. no, I know, but, um, but it does feel a lot like that is that is the problem, right? So on the surface of it, you would say we're sort of making assumption that this very privileged, usually very white population is representative of folks who may be at risk of, of any particular disease or disorder or illness. And then realizing that it's not easy, it's not a simple thing to generalize them to the broader population or even the, the broader population at risk of this disease. The problem is even more nuanced than that because what we have done and what was actually really beautifully and elegantly shown in this wonderful paper by by Carrie Gleason out of the University of Wisconsin is that we make the mistake of assuming when we do get some of that diversity into our research studies, we assume that that diverse group then generalizes to everybody with that particular identity. And mm -hmm. so for those of you who haven't read this particular paper, what they do is they, they actually look at a relatively large data set of individuals with dementia that have been very, very carefully collected across the United States. And what they found is that individuals with a baseline of mild cognitive impairment, if you followed them for a few years, it looked like white people were developing dementia at two to three times the rate as, as black people, which is exactly the opposite of what you would expect to see in the broader population. And it turns out that the problem was how they recruited individuals to the study. So all of the white people came from a memory clinic where you would expect people to have memory problems, because otherwise why would they go? And all of the black people were recruited from community samples. And so what you ended up having was, was almost like an apples and oranges problem. You were comparing what you thought were white people and black people where you assumed that everybody was equally exchangeable. But it turns out that what you thought was a white versus black problem was actually a clinic versus community problem. And so part of the issue when it comes to thinking about whether this is missing data or misclassified data or 
a selection bias. It seems like it's some flavor of all three of those because we're making these layered assumptions on top of each other about who is being represented with a particular subsample that, that we're able to reach. Yeah, so th there is this movement, and we're a little bit in the weeds here, but I hope you'll indulge me just a little bit longer because I, I find this fascinating. There's this nascent movement within epidemiology that says, essentially, we've spent way too much time focused on the difference between internal validity and external validity. Ultimately, at the end of the day, what we want to be able to do is make decisions in the real world, which includes diverse populations of people. And whether we get it wrong because we had bias within the study or whether we got it wrong because our study population didn't represent the people we want to make the inferences for, we get it wrong. And so it seems like what you're getting at is almost along those lines. We've got problems of bias. We've got problems of generalizability. We've also got problems of interpretation when there is effect modification. We're really dealing with bias soup, I think Haley likes to refer to it as. <laughs> I think that's perfect. That's a perfect term for it. <laughs> so I guess the question is, how do we do better? You know, where do we start in terms of thinking about how we get ourselves out of these problems. Yeah, that is the, that's the trillion dollar question. Like, where do we start? Um, <laughs> and I think that there are two particular places that are promising, at least from, from my perspective. So whenever I talk to people about trying to make the research studies more diverse, uh, more inclusive, I say that everything kind of boils down to, to two approaches. You can either explain it or you can fix it. And so these are not mutually exclusive. In most cases, you need to do both. So I would say that the same is true here. We both need to explain it and we need to fix it. And the only way that you can explain it is by doing a better job of qualifying and quantifying the nature of these biases. You know, I love Haley's term of, of talking about this as like a bias soup, because what is actually happening is that you've got multiple overlapping biases that are effectively interacting with each other. And it's and none of them are being measured and none of them are being addressed in, in the average clinical research study. And I wanted to say that it doesn't just apply to clinical research or like the, the average randomized control trial. We see this in, in observational studies more broadly. And where I think that this is particularly an issue, and this is where I get into the most fights with biostatisticians, is thinking about the ideas around generalizability, the ideas about transportability within pragmatic clinical trials. So for people who don't necessarily know what pragmatic trials are, these are very, very large scale clinical research studies where you randomize whole healthcare systems to a, like an intervention or to a control. And so so basically, and what's what's interesting is that individuals don't often know <laughs> whether they are a part of these, these pragmatic studies, but these are usually done to look for real world efficacy beyond a clinical trial. And so what's important to recognize here is that you are introducing bias, and this is something that is I think is still not well understood, you're introducing bias at every level of selection, where most people feel that you're only introducing bias when it comes to enrollment and eligibility criteria. But there's also bias being introduced in which healthcare systems you are, are choosing to work with, which investigators you are choosing to, to lead the study, because that constrains the part of the population that you're able to reach. And so I operate with like a large view of, of recognizing that you may have these selection effects. And so it is a, a deep issue that I think can be addressed by, by trying to measure and quantify it. And so trying to disentangle these biases from each other, I think, is, is the first issue. And then I think the second step is naturally starting to think about some of these, 
these transportation tools that are kind of the new hotness that, that people like to talk about. So we can use things like, like G computation, we can use things like inverse selection weighting to help us understand what the difference is between the sample that we've recruited, the sample that we've retained, and what level of uncertainty we have in, in trying to either transport this to a population that we didn't assess or generalize it to a, a population that we at least partially captured. And I think that that is probably our best medium term solution is trying to capture this as best we can statistically. But the better approach is to rethink the way that we design our research studies and recognize that, you know, number one, there's more than one way of being included. We need to have a hard look at eligibility criteria and recognize that, you know, we are being overly conservative when it comes to the design of most clinical studies. And what happens is you're, you think you're bouncing people out because of certain comorbidities, but you don't recognize, for example, that maybe some of those comorbidities are part of the disease pathology that you should be trying to assess and intervene on. And then, of course, you know, finding a way to make research trials and, and I would say more inclusive rather than more diverse. And that's, you know, when you have a study that's designed to be inclusive, you know, you, you certainly move on your way toward representativeness, like true representation of the people that are most important to you. And so the difference between diversity and inclusion, the kind of the shortcut definition that I use is diversity means that you, you want to have everybody or at least one of everybody involved. But inclusion means that you don't have to have everybody, but anybody can be a part of it. And so recognizing that clinical trials, observational research, because it is so finite in nature, you know, we should certainly strive for inclusion rather than true diversity. Because if you if you pursue diversity and you're trying to quantify diversity, anybody who's ever done any kind of math before knows that that gets you into a problem pretty quickly, especially if you're trying to stratify your sample on the basis of one category or another. So inclusion is, is, is the more elegant solution. And from there, we can start to build tools for quantifying whether our population is adequately representative. And where it's not, then we can start to lean on some of these transportation tools to help get us the rest of the way there. But we shouldn't be leaning on any one of these methods to kind of help fix the problems that we see. And I love that definition or description of, of the difference between inclusion and diversity. I've never heard it put that way. Is inclusion or diversity more important for representativeness? I, I, I understand the, the math and the, the positivity issue that you're describing related to diversity, but how do both of these terms relate to the broader concept of representativeness? Yeah. So thinking about representativeness, I think we can all appreciate and everyone listening to this can appreciate that there are a million definitions of representativeness. It depends yeah. on a lot of different factors. But if we think about representativeness as a problem of making sure that the people that we are looking at are the people that are either most in need of help or most likely to be the population that will need to access a particular resource or intervention, or you know they may be most likely to be at risk of a certain disease or disorder or, or malady, recognizing that we want to study the group that is perhaps most likely to reflect who's out there in the real world that may need either clarity on this issue or this particular intervention. And keeping in mind that that is very much an umbrella definition that can include a lot of different specific interpretations of representativeness. What you have to do first and foremost is you, you have to design a study to be inclusive. You need to make sure that anybody who reasonably qualifies under this broad 
definition of representativeness, has a fair shot of being able to access a clinical trial or to be captured in uh, like a secondary analysis by you know an enterprising epidemiologist to make sure that those people are included. And if we are relying on, say, Medicare or Medicaid billing data, we, we can recognize that that captures some people, but it's not going to capture all people. And we need to know who's missing from those kinds of analysis, right? So when you are pursuing inclusion, and if you do that really well, one of the natural consequences of that will be diversity. If you try to pursue diversity without changing your practices towards representativeness or towards inclusion, you're likely to get a kind of diversity that does not well, let me put this another way. You're likely to get a kind of diversity that doesn't solve the problem that you think it's going to solve. So just mm-hmm. like this this Carrie Gleason paper, we see what happens when individual study teams try to pursue diversity at the study site level. And when you aggregate all that together, you realize that you know the, the black people and the white people that you got in the study, you can't compare them in terms of the outcomes that you're looking for because you know one is a fundamentally different sample than the other. And so it is always better to pursue inclusion and not necessarily have the diversity that you're looking for than to pursue diversity without adopting inclusive practices. Because when you when you chase diversity without changing anything, you're not going to get the sample that you think you're going to get. You're going to get the sample that's easiest to get, which may not kind of address the, you know, the issue that you're looking to solve in the first place. So I, I mentioned earlier, you came and gave a, a talk at BU, and it was one of my favorite talks that I had heard that year. And the reason for that was you got my mind going in so many directions in terms of things I just never thought about before. And partly that's the limitation of my own training, and partly I'm sure it's personal limitations. But one of the things in what you just said really got my mind going in a couple of different directions. One is when we think about inclusion criteria in randomized trials, when we think about trials, we think one of the great benefits of trials is that we eliminate in the expectation with large numbers, the confounding problem. Mm -hmm. But of course, if your inclusion criteria are confounded with characteristics of of subpopulations that are important, you know, you won't have internal confounding, but you will have the kind of confounding that reduces your ability to generalize to whole swaths of the population just because it was confounded with, or maybe confounded isn't the right word because there's no outcome yet, but correlated with factors that say you're, you're only looking at the most severe or the least severe examples of a particular condition, those may be correlated with other population level factors that are also effect modifiers that are going to, again, lead you to fundamentally the wrong conclusions about anyone outside of your study. Yeah, exactly. Uh, you know, and, and relevant to the epi world, one of the, the papers that, that I think has been kind of a, a guiding light for me just to help think about any one dimension of this is, I, I don't know if, if you two read this or because I'm not part of your world, but uh, but Laura Balzar wrote this really cool paper called All, Generaliz- All Generalizations Are Dangerous, Even This One, where she was quoting Alexandre Dumas and just kind of talking about the problem of generalization and the fact that we have to recognize you know, to whom we are we are trying to generalize. And, you know, setting aside this problem of the tension between internal and external validity, you know, even when all of those assumptions are, are reasonable and met, you're still likely to see some substantial variation. 
question, right? And in, in terms of either estimating your, your sample average treatment effect or, or the population average treatment effect, and you can't necessarily just, you know, use one and, and substitute it for the other. So even in a perfect world, you know, we, we don't have a great ability to generalize. And so that obviously applies much more strongly if we're thinking about transportation rather than just mere generalizability. And, you know, when we're thinking about where we do have these, let's just say covariates um, that are potentially correlated between, that, that correlate between like our selection factors and may have a, some kind of correlation with our outcome measures, we recognize that, you know, the, the process of, of generalizing, you know, becomes still more dangerous and still more fraught, right? And so I think that this is one of those problems where I'm still thinking about it, but I'm coming at it from my perspective of thinking about diversity and inclusion and thinking about, say, like clinical trials. But it feels like one of these problem spaces where there is so much room for anybody who has thought about any dimension of this to kind of jump in that to me, it almost feels like a like a frontier, like a mm. frontier sub-discipline of science where we can just kind of jump in and we can all swim around and the pool is big enough for all of us. And so, you know, I one of the things that I'm, I'm certainly hoping to do is just to get more people thinking about this uh, because I, you know, there is no consensus. We haven't even really agreed on what this problem is called. But the more people who are thinking about it and the more people who are approaching it from their own areas of expertise, I think the better we will be able to do at first measuring this and explaining it and then trying to intervene and, and potentially solve it. But I think it's going to take us a while. I feel like this is maybe what Matt was feeling in your talk at BU, but I feel like my mind is like exploding with ideas <laughs> right now. Like I just, you explain this in such a clear and elegant yeah. way that is so different than often how we talk about it. Yeah. So, I mean, who, who knows where this thing is going to go? I'm going to tackle as much of this as I can, but this is one of those, one of those challenges that I, I think is, is so big that you know it's gonna it's gonna take a whole team of us from a bunch of different sectors a d- bunch of different disciplines to to even characterize it so I hope that maybe some people who are listening to this also feel maybe the explosion that Matt has felt that Haley is feeling that I feel constantly and just kind of jump in and, and start working on this because I, I think we need to figure out where we need to go we need to figure out where the problems are where the gaps in our reasoning are and and try to work together to solve it because it really does feel like a like a like a really 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 big problem and uh i just i i could i could use all the help that i can get in in trying to work on this well let me uh give you one more idea that occurred to me when you were talking and and oh please please do to react to it but one of the things that that you made me think about when i when it comes to these inclusion criteria exclusion criteria in in trials is i sort of have this worry that if in fact we set our inclusion criteria such that the problems that we are are focusing on end up as you say you know focused on narrow subsets of the population and and often i think wealthier and healthier is probably the 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 subsets of the population yeah wealthier wealthier and healthier for sure and that what will actually do by setting those inclusion criteria is develop knowledge and interventions that will actually have the impact of reinforcing the inequities in the systems that we are actually currently existing when it comes to health. And I'm curious whether that I'm on the right track there or... No, no, you are are absolutely on the right track. And, And this is something that I'm actually trying to find a good way of quantify and explore because there is this, there is this undercurrent, there is this sentiment that some of the 
health disparities that we see in this day and age. You know, I, I think we're starting to recognize that it's more racism than race, uh, at least some of us as are, or, or at least recognizing that there are systemic inequities that perpetuate some of, you know, the, the health outcomes that we're seeing. Part of the problem has been that the way that we practice research studies and, and clinical trials today comes from the Belmont Report, which was uh, published in the 1970s. And there, I think there was some chat about this on Twitter in the last few weeks, but few people recognize why we had the Belmont Commission in the first place. And the Belmont Commission was formed as a direct response to the Tuskegee syphilis study, which was, you know, like this really awful study that was run for 40 years. And, you know, what I think has happened is the Belmont Commission was was so worried about making about this problem happening that they have effectively and unknowingly sort of designated anybody that is not immediately proximal to a clinical trial as a special population. And so we know that these special populations, you need sort of a different playbook to inter interact with them. Some of those are named within the Belmont Report. So women who are pregnant, mm -hmm. people who are incarcerated or, or prisoners. So, you know, children, of course. So we, we recognize that, uh, say, people of color, you know, sexual and gender minorities, for example, are, you know, effectively these special populations because they're not immediately adjacent to the work that we're doing. Because they are not convenient, you know, we, we've left them out. And so there, there is a, a sentiment, just to come back to the point, that since the late 1970s, early 1980s, when we put in these methods for human subject research, that those benefits have disproportionately gone to the people who are participating in clinical trials, the people who are participating in health research more generally, even observational research. And so, you know, if you actually map out the nature of those disparities, so thinking about, say, maternal mortality between white and black women. You can see that it, it's not that, you know, maternal mortality has gotten significantly worse for black women. There is like a little bit of that trend, but rather that the outcomes for white women have, have improved no end over the last 40 years. And, and so a lot of that, can, a lot of that variance can be traced back to the way that we design clinical trials and we have done in the last few decades. So, you know, your point is, is entirely spot on that if we don't do a better job of this. We think that we're we're kind of in this business to to kind of solve health maladies, to make, you know, to improve outcomes for people, but by kind of giving into the way that the system is designed and sort of relying on kind of this, you know, uh, business as usual, we're inadvertently potentially reinforcing some of these biases that we're not even aware of. And so, you know, the the outcome is that these inequities can be either perpetuated or, as we're starting to see, potentially exacerbated. Yeah, it really is, is a worry. And, and I think, you know, the fact that probably many of us aren't even aware that we're doing it is likely to make the problem worse. So I just want to go back to where I started and say that I think that whether you consider yourself a, an epidemiologist or not, I think that the, the work that you are doing is likely to have a really profound impact on the way that we do epidemiology and also the actual impact on health uh, as a general concept. And so I am really appreciated that you're come on and, and enlightened us on this. And I hope that we will be able to have you back sometime to talk about it more. Yeah, I, I would certainly love to do that. I mean, I, I say that I, I, I don't consider myself an epidemiologist by training, but you know, let's let's be real. I am the ultimate epi fanboy. <laughs> like I am like the, the kid in the back who who wishes he was an epidemiologist. I talk about this with my family and they make fun of me no end. Because, you know, I, I'm the kind of person who doesn't get starstruck by celebrities or anything like that. But if I see, like, a well-known epidemiologist, you know, I'm clutching my pearls. Like, I'm suddenly really shy. I'm like, you know, do you think they want to talk to me? And so... 
it's it's kind of the only area of my life where, where I am this unabashed fanboy. So, you know, if if I can be welcomed into the world of Epi, I will I would gladly I would gladly accept that invitation just because I, I admire the work that you do so much. So if you if you send Matt and I your address, we will mail you the official epidemiology membership card yes. for you know for those. And I think as a correction, would you say you are also a Star Trek fanboy or uh-huh. would you would you you know put the the epi in a different way? I, you know, I don't actually consider myself much of a Star Trek fanboy. I I enjoy Enjoy the show, and I'm doing this podcast because I think it's fun. But it's not something that I think about. Like I, like I've had conversations with the other cast members on Star Trek, and they'll rank their top five episodes from each of the series in order, and then they can like mix them all up. And I can't do that. Like I can sort of name like a couple of episodes that I thought were really, really well done. But like I think I obsess over Epi way more than I obsess over Star Trek. So I guess you know one last question before we we have to go. <laughs> okay. If you are walking down the street and coming out. At you Spock he's Star Trek right Spock <laughs> was walking down the street towards you would you be more or less nervous than if Ken Rothman was walking down the street uh I would be less less nervous so you know this is a story for another day I've actually met my fair share of like TV and movie celebrities just by random situations mm. throughout my life and I, I'm generally a pretty chill person but I I have noticed that my heart beats faster my, my words are more muddled <laughs> uh and I find myself looking at my shoes much more with with your with like not even like super famous epidemiologists so like i i give a lot of public talks and i i can say that i i was sort of the most nervous about this podcast out of all of the things that i've had to do in the last several months just because you are two like epi people and you're two very well known very i think well respected and you know very uh, like highly awarded epi people so it's just you know, I, I'm kind of like in that Wayne's world, like we're not worthy kind of moment. Oh, but, no. uh, so I, I don't do that with celebrities. So if Spock walked down the street, I'd be like, you know, what's up? What's up, Leonard Nimoy? But, you know, with, with Ken Rothman or with anybody, uh, I, I would find myself really stumbling over my words. Well, we, we really appreciate you coming on. This has been a, been a fa- fascinating talk. So, Thank so you. thanks for doing it. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Well, for those of you who are not members of the Society for Epidemiologic Research, I want to recommend that you consider becoming a member. Membership gets you a discounted fee for the annual meeting, and it also gets you access to the SER library, where there are a whole bunch of really great learning materials, seminars, and activities. You can find out more at epiresearch.org. That's epi research.org. We also want to plug our sister podcast, the one that we love, Casual Inference from the American Journal of Epidemiology with with Ellie Murray and Lucy D'Agostino McGowan. It's a great podcast. And if you like this one, we think you'll like that one as well. So we really appreciate you listening and we hope you'll be on the lookout for our next episode. 